Well, good morning. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Art. Where are you, Art? There you are. Thank you for coming and sharing with us today. Um, we just love the ministry of Network of Nations, and uh, our church is planning to commit two Fridays this school year to help host the uh, Friday Night Cafe, and Julie and Kevin Jesmer are our liaisons for that. So I just want to tell you, my family's been so blessed by the times that we've gone there, and you go with the purpose of serving, and you get fed coming back. And the students are just a delight. They just love, love to hang out uh, with the people that come and host. And it's just a really awesome, awesome ministry. Uh, so I'd really encourage you. It's a, we'll do it two times during the year. You can go other times as well. But as a church, we're going to host it. And it's two or three hours on a Friday night. And I guarantee you, you will not come away thinking you've wasted your time. It's an awesome blessing. So uh, let's pray before we dig into God's Word this morning. Father, we are so grateful for you, and we just thank you um, for what you are doing in our midst and in the nations. Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. God, you bless us with the gospel, not so we can keep it to ourselves, but so that we can reach out to the nations, and the nations are at our doorstep, Lord. So would you uh, bless that ministry mightily? God, we would love to see hundreds and, and thousands of, of students coming from all over the world to NIU to put their faith in Christ and then go back to their nations and preach that gospel and see revival in those countries. And God, would you help us as a church to... Uh, really be a part of that. It's such an opportunity that you've given to us. So we thank you, and we just pray for your blessing today upon your word. Uh, we lift it up to you, God. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect in our weaknesses. Would you come now, God, and, and bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to share with you today from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through chapter 6, verse 2, living for eternity in the here and now. And time is really a funny thing. It's, it's a very fleeting thing. We think about oftentimes it seems like time flies, and we even have that saying, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, even frogs have their version of that. It's time's fun when you're having flies. So Don told me I'd get a couple groans with that one, so I, I had to throw it in. So uh, sometimes we want time to fly, and sometimes we want it to go slow. We're getting ready to go on vacation uh, next weekend, and we've been planning on it since January, and we've been so excited about it, and it's almost here. And I know, uh, sure as anything, it's going to get here, and it's going to go just like that, and it's going to be done. And, and uh, I know the kids are glad that the summer's flown by and school's starting again. That's got to be fun. So... It's just, time just really seems to go very fast. I can remember when I was a junior in high school, uh, some friends of mine, their parents had their picture in the paper for their 20-year class reunion. And I thought, man, that seems ancient, and it seems so far away. And two years ago, Don and I went back for my 35-year class reunion, and one of my uh, classmates got the prize for having the most grandchildren. He had 19 grandchildren, and I got the prize for having the youngest kid. So, so, 
Yes, I was very pleased with that. So I'm doing, I, God gave me a very young wife, so I'm able to still feel young in my older age. But all that to say that time goes by very fast, but time is one of the greatest assets that God gives us in this life, and with what we do with it reflects our love and our heart for him. And if I know Jesus, I can look forward to the days ahead. You know, Paul says in the passage just prior to what we're going to be talking about that the outer man is perishing, meaning we're getting older, our bodies are wearing down, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. So as we draw on in life and draw closer to the time that God would call us home, we can, we can walk with confidence in that. And, and we can live a life that counts for God. And I, I hope that as we share today that we'll see uh, how, we can, how we can do that. Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. We need to think about time. We need to think about how am I spending it. I want to spend it for, for something that counts. I want to spend it for Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So Paul links the idea of a wise walk in life with how we use our time. And he says that the days are evil. We know that there's going to be opposition to that. And as we walk by faith, we are living for eternity in the here and now. And it's not an easy task. We, we all battle fleshly inclinations to follow our own selfish desires and ambitions, and, and we're at war with the enemy of our souls as well. But we're going to see how we can practically win this battle in today's passage. And today in, in the bulletin and your outline, there's four points. Awe, love, high definition, and mission. And each one's going to have an action point associated with it that, that will actually be our application at the end um, of how we can walk closer with Christ and have an impact for him. And as we strive to do these things and live these things out, we will walk more intimately with Jesus. And as we do, our relationships on earth will change. They'll be greatly affected as we do this. And we'll stay on purpose in the life that God has called us to. Now, Paul is the author of this, of this book, the Second Corinthians. And part of the reason he's writing is because his authority, his apostolic authority is being challenged. So he's writing in part to address that. But he's also writing to encourage the Corinthians and to tell them, we're in this mission together and I want you to join with me. He's saying to them, join with me in the greatest mission ever, the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's encouraging them to walk by faith. And he's going to be straightforward with them by telling them it isn't going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be all-out war. In, in chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul often uses this battlefield language when talking about the Christian life. And in war, knowing your own strengths and resources and also knowing the enemy's tactics and plans are key factors to victory. And Paul highlights both throughout this book. And ultimately, the victory is ours through Christ. And yet we find that in this life, we, we, uh, we battle this on a day-to-day -day basis. And Paul refers to Satan directly or indirectly five different times in this book. 
And in those references, we can get a glimpse of what his plans and tactics are against us as individuals and against the church. And knowing these tactics gives us great insight on how to do battle with him. During the Civil War, there was an incident that really illustrates this beautifully. The Southern Army had been dominating the war during the first two years. They'd been winning most of the battles. Robert E. Lee's army was just running right through the Northern armies, and they were really gaining momentum. And it really looked like they, were, they had the upper hand. Uh, he decided to plan an invasion of the North. And it was felt that that invasion could potentially end the war, that he could go in and, and defeat them, and that would be it. They would get peace, and they would have their, their nation. He issued what was called Special Order 191 that gave detailed instructions to all his commanders for the invasion, including the routes and the roads his troops would take and the timing of one of the, the most strategic attacks. So they were camped in an area in Maryland, around uh, Monocacy, Maryland, and they uh, picked up camp and they started to head up to go farther north. And then some northern troops came through to the area that they were at to settle in. And, and uh, while they were there, uh, Corporal Barton W. Mitchell, the 27th Indiana Volunteers, found an envelope with three cigars wrapped in a piece of paper. Now, he thought he found a great treasure when he saw those cigars, but when he unwrapped the paper, he saw that it was Robert E. Lee's Special Order 191. He immediately handed it to his superior, and it went on up to the, the chain of command, and it got, its hands into, it got into the hands of uh, Major General George B. McClellan, and upon receiving it, he said, Now I know what to do. Here is a paper with which I cannot whip Bobby E. Lee. I will be willing to go home. And led by that information, he responded, and it led to the Battle of Antietam, by which the Union troops effectively repulsed Lee's invasion, devastating his plan, and sent the Southern armies back to Virginia. Now the war would go on for three more years, but that was a key, key battle in the war. So finding those instructions and knowing what the enemy was planning was a key in his victory, in the North's victory. So I wanted to look at some of Satan's battle plans as revealed in this book to just get an idea what's he up to and we can have a better idea how to battle that. And the first one is this. Attack where the church is advancing. Paul's authority is being challenged you read in there, it just talks about the struggles that he faced, but it's just, it makes sense. Wherever the gospel goes forward, people are going to come to Christ, and, that, and Satan is anti-Christ. He's everything against Christ, so wherever the gospel goes, he's going to oppose it. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul said, A wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So we shouldn't be surprised if we have problems or trials in our life when we're walking with Christ, there's going to there's be issues that are going to come up. We're going to have opposition to our walking with him. We need to not let that be surprises. We need to remember that individually, and we need to remember that as a church. The second one is get them to harden their hearts towards one another and refuse to forgive one another. I found this really fascinating. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. One of the believers in the Corinthian church had sinned, they, uh, re he had repented of it, but the church was withholding forgiveness from him. They were not restoring him to fellowship. Paul says this, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ 
Now look, listen to this verse. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. One of his tactics is to get us to live in unforgiveness with one another. And to live with an unforgiving spirit is contrary to the gospel. Now, it's not easy. And I'm not saying we're perfect at it. And I'm not saying there aren't things that take time. But we have to have a heart. I want to forgive this person. I want to work through this as best we can with the help of of the grace of God. Third one is get them to live lives that are indistinct from the world. And this is in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. We're to live in the world, but not of the world. And part of the problem with the Corinthian church was they were in the world, and they were also of the world. They, they allowed it to get in and intermingle with who they are. Instead of them influencing the world, the world is influencing them. And, and we need to guard against that for ourselves and as a church. The next one is lead them away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that that is very easy to happen. It happened to the church at Ephesus when John wrote to them uh, from Revelation who said that you've left your first love. And we need to be on guard that we don't lose our, our first love and leave our first love. We need to make our time with Christ a, a priority. I think of Mary and Martha. It's a beautiful illustration. Jesus had come to the house for dinner, and Martha was all worried and distracted, and Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus said, this, this is what you're to do, is to sit at the feet of Jesus. <clears throat> the next one, the same chapter is send people among them who will subtly distort the gospel and oppose the authority of the word. Paul had his opposers. Sometimes it's hard to imagine how could anybody oppose Paul? I mean, but they did, obviously. And again, it's Satan opposing the gospel. He says, And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ, or disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul is saying there's people that are claiming to be Christians and they're totally opposing the gospel. They're fighting him. And that's how Satan works. It's very subtle. <clears throat> and the next one is in chapter 12. We know Paul had his thorn in the flesh. He called it a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And it's isolate and attack them to cause them to draw inward, losing hope and focus. When It doesn't say what his thorn in the flesh was, so it could be anything. But it was an attack on him as a person. And how often does Satan do that individually to us? He comes and attacks us, and our, our, desire, our, our, our emotion is to, I'm just going to draw inward. I'm just not going to talk about this, or I'm going to pull away from the church. And, and it causes us to lose hope and focus. Instead of crying out to Christ like Paul did, and 
Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to take away his thorn in the flesh, and Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, and Christ's grace is sufficient for all of us. And he wants us as a body to come together more and more to hold one another up and point each other to the sufficient grace of Christ. So Satan meant that thorn in the flesh to destroy Paul, but God meant it for his good. So let's always remember, though, when we talk about these things, that Jesus said that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell can't prevail against it. So even though Satan has an agenda, Satan has attacks on us as a church and as, as individuals, we have the victory in Christ, and we need to remember that. So look at me, well, look at me, look at with me uh, to uh, verses 11 and 13 with me, if you would. And our first point is, if I want to walk closely with Christ and, and uh, have an impact for eternity, I want to walk in constant awe of Jesus Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. <clears throat> if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now notice the first word of the passage is therefore. <coughs> Excuse me. This is an application word, so we have to, he's, he's going to apply something that he just talked about. So we have to back up. In verses 5 to 10, he's talking specifically about walking by faith and seeking to please Christ in our walk. And the reason, one of the reasons, a huge reason, because we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there is a future day when we all will give an account of our lives before the Lord. And before his throne, he says here, those who do good and those who do evil. Now, those who have done evil are those who have never come to faith in Christ, and they've lived lives for themselves. And they will be judged accordingly by being cast away from his presence forever. Those who have done good are those who have, by the grace of God, put their faith in Christ alone to save them. And in love for Christ, they've lived their lives for him. Their good works don't earn them salvation, because that's purely the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. But there are rewards for those who have followed Christ. We will be held accountable for the knowledge that we have and, and how we've used our time for Christ and our gifts. So we'll never, ever be judged for our sins because Christ has taken care of that. He's paid for our, our debt at Calvary. Jesus knows our hearts, and he knows every motive behind every action. And the thought of that is both comforting and convicting. And we need to ask him to search our hearts and to cleanse us from all selfish motives and replace them with Christ-centered motives. So he says in the passage, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord speaks of reverence and awe. For those who don't know Christ, there is a great fear of judgment, and there should be. And we want to persuade them to come to Christ and be reconciled. But for those who know Christ, as I said, there's no fear of judgment as far as being cast away from his present for first john tells us that perfect love casts out fear that means 
Christ has taken care of the judgment for our sins that was due to us. But we want to persuade one another to walk in awe and love of Christ. And our fear of the Lord is reverence and awe for who he is. He's holy and he's awesome and he's loving and gracious and kind. And we worship him for who he is and how great he is. And and we live our lives accordingly. R.C. Sproul describes living in awe of Christ by using the term quorum deo. And this phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. Oh, thanks, Jim. Thank you. I appreciate that. Getting out the door today, I forgot my water bottle, so thanks, Jim. It's to live one, one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There's no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. Again, a very convicting thought, but also a very comforting thought. No matter where we are, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Paul, in this passage, is living Coram Dale when he says, What we are is known to God. He says, God knows my heart. He's saying, Corinthians, God knows my heart, and and even though there are some who are opposing me and saying things against me, I have your best interests in mind. I love you, he's saying. If you understand this, then you're going to be blessed. If you think I'm crazy and out of my mind, well, God knows my heart. That's what he's saying, and I'm here to serve him. Living Coram Dale means we'll live our lives before the face of Christ, even if it means we're rejected. Even if no one else is following Christ, we will. And it's hard. I mean, right now we can't physically see him. Uh, My family and I are getting ready to walk out the door today, and our daughter Mackenzie was not feeling well at all, and so they had to stay home, and right now they're not here, so I can't see them physically. But I know where they are. I know they're at home in that house, and I trust that they're there. And similarly, Jesus right now is at the Father's right hand. We can't see him with our naked eye, but that with our eyes of faith from our heart, we know that he's there. And we know that he's there because of the word of God says that he is. Romans 8, 34 is just one verse that says that who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So right now, that's where Jesus is in bodily form. He is just as much there as we are here, sitting in this room. And we need to acknowledge him. We need to live as if that's true, because it is true. John MacArthur, several years ago, I heard him talk about uh, a Christ consciousness, as far as being aware of Christ and him being present. It means we're thinking about him. We're communicating with him throughout our day. And maybe we don't feel it. Maybe we're struggling to believe it. But it doesn't change the truth of it. Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. We need to think about him during our day. We need to talk to him. We need to praise him and thank him for everything in our day. If something bad comes up, we can say, Jesus, this is horrible, this is bad. But I know that I know that I know that you are there, and I know right at this moment you're praying for me. 
And as we do this, we, we, we take our lives to where we're more and more living in awe of him. And as we do that, we're living by faith. And we are walking and living for eternity in the here and now. Well, we worship what we love, and to live in awe of Christ means that our hearts must be gripped by the love of Christ. Verses 14 and 15, he says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The, the action point here is living life under the control, controlling influence of the love of Christ. The, he says the love of Christ controls us, and the word is constrained. It means to be compressed and kept irresistibly to one object. It means the love of Christ compresses us and, and keeps us irresistibly to one object, namely Christ and his gospel. And when his love grips my heart, grips our hearts, it radically changes us inside out. It changes how we live, and we are driven by it. We've seen people that can be driven by their careers or driven by money. This love of Christ is to drive us in an even greater way than anything else can drive us. It affects our decisions in life. It affects how we interact with one another. It affects everything. What is the love of Christ? It's the love that's revealed for us in the gospel. And we see it here in the passage, but we, we had just mentioned also the judgment seat of Christ, and we compare it with his holiness Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for all men to die once and then face judgment. That's the holiness of God to punish sin. But in the grace and mercy of God, in the love of God, in the God's mercy towards us, he pours out all his wrath upon Christ. So when we come by grace and place our faith and trust in him, we're forgiven. and We no longer face any judgment. That's love. And that's defined for us here. It's defined by his sacrifice. In 1 John 4.10, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If we ever question whether God loves us, all we have to think about is the cross. That God would pour all his wrath out upon his own son. That's love. Paul says, we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. One died for all. This is love. Christ dying for all of us who have come to faith in him. And this love goes beyond comprehension. We, can spend, we will spend eternity just gazing into it. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. He's praying for the believers to come to a fuller understanding of the love of Christ. He says that the love of Christ is without limits or bounds, and it's, it's incomprehensible. He says he wants you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's amazing. And he says that as we come to a fuller understanding of the love of Christ, we'll be filled up to the fullness of God. And then the love of Christ... As that happens, it's going to overflow in our lives. And then he finishes that passage with saying, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So more and more we need to dwell on this love. 
if we're struggling, we need to get, get, open up the Word and just pour over the passages and look at Calvary and look at how much God loves us. <clears throat> the more we do that, the more we meditate on it, we're going to be gripped by the love of Christ. And our lives are going to be changed. And notice in the passage also the love of Christ does produce a fundamental change in those who know him and a new purpose is given. We are united with him by faith in his death and resurrection. It says that those who are Christ have died with him. Before Christ, we lived for ourselves. We went about doing things with self-driven motives. But once we come to faith in Christ, once we're united to him, he says that he died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We can't live for ourselves anymore if we are lovers of Christ. And if the love of Christ controls my heart, then I will live for him. Am I going to be perfect at it? Absolutely not. I'm going to falter every single day. But my love for Christ and his love for me is going to motivate me and change me and cause me to, to continue to follow him. So as we live under the controlling influence of the love of Christ, we will be living for eternity in the here and now. And when the grace of God comes into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and we put our faith and trust in him, there's a whole new being is created. And we become new creatures in Christ. And that's what he talks about in verses 16 and 17, what I've termed high definition. <clears throat> and we need, we, we need to live our lives defining ourselves and others by the eternal work of Jesus Christ. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We think about regular TV, definition TV and high definition TV. If you turn on a sporting event and regular TV, it's kind of blurry. And then you switch over to high definition, the picture is much more crisp. Well, our sins tend to make us look blurry. And we tend to think about that when we're thinking about ourselves and each other. We, evaluate our, we can, can evaluate ourselves in light of that. But as new creations in Christ, we're in high definition. We can evaluate each other not by what we are or look like, but what Christ has said is true of us, that we are a new creation. We have a hard time forgetting that with ourselves and with each other. Maybe we've had a, uh, something that we've, we've uh, sin we've committed and we've repented of it, but it's still in the back of our mind and we can't get it out of our mind. And, but we need to recognize that Christ says it's forgiven and he says you're a new creation in Christ. Or maybe somebody has sinned against us and, and we're really struggling with getting past what they did. And we think of them and every time we think of them, we think about that thing that they did. But we need to, by the grace of God, say no. Scripture says that he's a, he or she is a new creation in Christ, and that's how I choose to evaluate them. Does that mean we don't deal with issues or we don't deal with sins? No, we, we do. We do. We have to deal with things and deal with issues and, and work with one another and, and confess and confront when we need to. And, but we do it in love, and we keep in mind of what God has said is true about each other. He says that we don't, even, we don't even think of Jesus as, 
uh, like we used to. Jesus came, he lived among us, he walked among us, he died and rose again. Now he's entered forever into the new creation. He's entered forever into heaven. He's no longer affected by the ravages of this world. And he says those who have been united with him by faith are, are joined with him in this resurrected life. We are new creations in Christ. Just as God spoke creation into existence by a word, now through the word of Christ, through the gospel, he has spoken into our hearts and made a new creation. And the work of Christ takes people in our sinful natures and recreates them in the image of God. And he says, the old has passed away and the new has come. And again, we we tend to think too much about the old. We need to think about the new and what God says is true. So if we're plagued by thoughts of past sin or broken relationships or failures of any kind, we need to remind ourselves that in Christ, we are new creations. The old has passed away and the new has come. We must view others in the same light. We must deal with our sin. We must work through that with one another, but we must see ourselves in a new light. So as we live life defining ourselves and others by the eternal work of Christ, again, we are living in eternity for the here and now. And being a new creation in Christ gives us a whole new purpose to life. It gives us a mission in life, and his mission becomes our mission, and that's our next point. Live life pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ. All this is from God, he says in chapter 5, verse 18 who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He says all of this is from God. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. If we are in Christ, it's because God has extended his sovereign grace to us. He is the one who's reconciled us to himself through Christ. And it is only through Christ that we can be reconciled. And obviously that's why it's so important that we need to tell people. There is no other way. In Christ, God does not count our trespasses against us. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory, and God has made only one provision for sin, and that's Christ. And we are a reconciled people called to bring the message of reconciliation to the world. Our sins have separated us from God, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 59, but in in Christ, our sins are forgiven, and that gap between God and us is removed. The world is separated from God, and they're headed for an eternity without him. And the love of Christ compels us to call them to reconciliation. He says here that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, and God entrusted us with the message 
of reconciliation. That's the most amazing privilege in all the earth. It's more important than any career I would choose. It's more important than how much money I have in retirement. It's more important than having a comfortable life. It's a, a, the most amazing purpose. It's, it's the only purpose. And, and everything else in our lives should flow out of that. And verse 20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador represents the interests of his country in a foreign country. We belong to the kingdom of Christ, and we are called to bring the gospel to the kingdom of darkness. And notice that God says he is making his appeal through us. So when God opens a door for us to share gospel truth with somebody, it's as if he's speaking right through us. He's calling people to himself, and he's using us to do it. Now, he could just zap people and save them like he did with Paul, but that's not how he typically does it. He typically does it through sending messengers, and and we're his messengers. God chooses to call people to himself through the people he's already called to himself. And when we share Christ, as I said, God is speaking in us and through us. And it's an amazing privilege and honor and responsibility for us. So again, whether we're a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, a homemaker, electrician, student, father, mother, son, daughter, no matter what we are or what we do, as believers in Christ, we're primarily ambassadors. That's our purpose in life. And I truly believe that if we would get a grip of that thought and would cry out to the Lord, I want, my, I want to live out my calling as your ambassador, I'm sure God's going to answer that prayer. And we, as the reconciled people of God, are called to take the message of reconciliation to those who are unreconciled so that they can be reconciled. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal to think about. Verse 21 He shows us what some have called the great exchange. It's one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, I think. He says, For our sake, God made Christ, the one who is perfect and without sin, to be sin. To be our sin. Christ became our sin on the cross. He took our rebellion against God and paid the ultimate price so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our sin upon himself, and in exchange he gives us his perfect righteousness. That's phenomenal. That's love that we can't even comprehend. When that gets, we get a grip on that, that's got to change us. We are in right standing with God because Christ took all of our sins upon himself. No other way, and only by faith. And then this passage ends with a great exclamation point for how we can live for eternity in the here and now. He says we are co-workers with God in in verse 1 of chapter 6. And that's incredible to think about. But it's the call of every believer in Christ. I mean, we think about, you know, people that we work with on a day-to-day basis, and that's great. But think about that you are a co-worker with God Almighty. You're on his team. You work for him. And we're to take this message of the gospel to the world. And he says it's a message of grace. It's God's unmerited favor. We've heard the acronym God's grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid it all. Christ did it all. We deserve death. And because of what he did, we get life. Just by coming to him by faith. 
And notice also there's an urgency and an element of time. As we talk about time seems to go by so fast. But there's an urgency to it. He says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We know what now brings. We live in this moment with an eye to eternity. So if you are here and you've never been reconciled to God by coming to Christ by faith alone, there's nothing more urgent than to receive the grace of God. Christ died for your sins. He was raised from the dead, and God is calling you to be reconciled to him. And as Paul said, we implore you, I implore you to be reconciled to God through Christ. It's a very strong word, implore. And if you're in Christ, there's nothing more urgent than to carry out your calling as his ambassador. We need to be calling people to reconciliation. We need to be walking in awe of Christ. We need to be walking in the love of Christ. It's the greatest and noblest calling in all the earth. There's nothing greater to do. And as we live life pursuing the mission of Christ, then we're living for eternity in the here and now. So I'd like to, as we bring this to a close, the one thing about these truths that we mentioned is that they all kind of run together. If we want to live on mission as an effective ambassador for Christ, then we need to live in constant awe of Christ. And we need to live under the controlling influence of his love. And we need to live in high definition. We need to define ourselves and each other by the eternal work of Christ. And as we do these things, we will be living for eternity in the here and now. And as we do that, we will be fighting against the enemy who's trying to keep us from doing this. But we do it all for the love and the glory of Christ. So again, the... the, The points of application basically are the outline. Awe is to live life in constant awe of Jesus Christ. Be thinking about him during my day. Be praying. Be bringing everything before him. Love. Live life under the controlling influence of the love of Christ. I want to spend more and more time just on my knees before God, just thanking him for what Christ has done for me and thinking about the cross and and thinking about how Jesus became my sin on the cross. The perfect holy lamb of God became everything I've ever done or said, all that I am that is so sinful. He took all of that on himself. I want to think about that. I want my life to be changed by that. In high definition, I want to live life defining myself and others by the eternal work of Christ. And again, this isn't easy. But if I'm having an issue with a believer, I want to say, I've got this issue, I want to work through it. But you know what? God says that they are a new creation in Christ. And as Jeff Lewis reminded me this week, a thousand years from now, I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but we're all going to be there and we're all going to be perfect in Christ. And we're not going to have issues with one another. And then finally, the mission. I want to live life pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ. I want to say, God, I just want every day and every moment to count for you. So would you lead me in that path where I can have the highest effect for the gospel possible for your glory. Let's pray. Lord, we just uh, are so grateful for you, God, and we, we are in so need of your grace and mercy. Uh, Lord, we want to walk 
in awe, in constant awe of you, constantly worshiping and reverencing you. And we want our hearts to be gripped, controlled, constrained, compressed by the love of Christ so that Christ is our all in all. And we want to live in high definition. We want to define each other and ourselves by being new creations in Christ. And as we do these things, then we can live on mission and bring in the gospel to the world. And then we know, God, that the enemy of our souls is opposed to you, and he hates us because he hates you. And we've seen today from Corinthians that some of the tactics that the enemy has, and, and we want to be aware of that. And we want to know, too, that as we pursue you, and we pursue you in awe and love in high definition, as we're on mission, that we will see victory. And, and we acknowledge also from the, four, from the first, very first moment right now, it's all about Christ. Jesus, you said you would build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in Colossians, we said that the, that the enemy has already been defeated at the cross. So we are fighting a battle where the enemy is already beaten and we are grateful for that. And we look forward to that day, that eternal day where we stand before Christ and forever and ever we will be in his presence, never again to have any sin, never again to have any issues with one another, never again to have any guilty thoughts about stuff that we've done and repented of and can't get out of our minds, never again to be hassled by the evil one, but just to be in eternal love and bliss and holiness forever and ever. We look forward to that day. And I just pray for us as a body at KBC, just as Paul called the Corinthians to, to join in the mission with him, we want to join in the mission, Lord, together. And as we do, we want the love of Christ to be seen us in this, in this community and in the world. For Christ's glory, we pray. Amen.